Mortimer, Episode 6 Thank you for tuning in to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. It's just little old me, Millie. Now, I've always been frightened of microphones, but uh, no longer. I'm growing into an adult now, and I'm ready to shine. I am excited to introduce this week's episode. I just can't imagine who could have snuck into the house in the middle of the night and cut up the dining room table, Mrs. Peabody fretted. What possible motive could there have been to destroy such an exquisite piece? Neville put his head into his hands. They must have been pretty quiet. I didn't hear a thing last night. Millie rose to serve her colleagues tea and cookies. Yes, but your room's on the third floor. Mrs. Peabody brushed a tear from her eye before taking a grateful sip from her cup. I'm afraid of what this could mean. Mrs. Dixon looked one by one into the faces of those around her. What? What could mean? Millie scrunched her face in confusion. Neville didn't move. His head remained in his hands. Mrs. Dixon suspected that he had long ago come to the conclusion that she just had, but that he was quite unwilling to accept it. It was an inside job, Mrs. Dixon answered, her expression a practice facade. Mrs. Peabody gasped. You you don't suspect it was one of us who did it? Not one of us at the table. Mrs. Dixon fixed her gaze on Neville, who had now lifted his head, his face ashen. Neville? I've not been to the master's room yet this morning. He met her eyes. The flurry of excitement, all four of them leapt up from their chairs and rushed together toward the staircase. At the bottom, Mrs. Dixon whipped her arms out as if to block their ascent to the second floor. Stop! she commanded in a hiss. Only Neville and I shall proceed. But why? Millie was disappointed in being cut off from the adventure. We can't have the help bursting down the doors now, can we? Mrs. Dixon lifted her nose condescendingly and then turned and headed up the staircase. Neville shrugged an apology to Mrs. Peabody and Millie before following Mrs. Dixon up the stairs. At the top, she waited for him and watched to be sure that Mrs. Peabody and Millie had complied with her directive. Once Neville was by her side, she started moving again, speaking in hushed tones. I expect that a confession will be more easily rendered should the inquiry be raised in a discreet manner. I, I don't suppose that a pile of wood would suffice as a confession, Neville retorted. Just keep your mouth shut and follow my lead. They arrived at the grand oak door that was ornately decorated with intricate engravings. It was closed. No light came from beneath. Perhaps the mistress was still asleep, thought Mrs. Dixon. But considering her psychological state, Mrs. Dixon thought it best to just check. She knocked on the door three times. 
Mrs. Ascariat, it is I, Mrs. Dixon. I am here to see what you would like for your breakfast. They listened, but there was no response. Mrs. Dixon rapped on the door again. Mrs. Ascariat! Again, there was no response. Funny, Mrs. Dixon muttered under her breath. She grasped the brass doorknob and pushed the door open. Neville stepped away politely, in case the lady of the house was still in her sleeping attire. Mrs. Dixon went inside. A moment later she came out again. She's not in there, her thin black brows lifted in surprise. Not in her quarters? Surprise was replaced with horror. You, you don't suppose she's wandering around outside again? I didn't hear anyone go out the door. Mrs. Dixon bit her lip. The last time Mrs. Iscariot had gotten a whimsy to wander, they'd received a notice from Mrs. Albright, who had heard from someone, who had heard from another person, who had heard from even another person that Mrs. Iscariot was down at the harbour, belly on the dock watching the fish, while wearing nothing besides her nightgown. Perhaps we shall check the master's room? Mrs. Dixon nodded, still mussing over the possible whereabouts of the lady of the house. She followed Neville to Walt Mortimer's quarters. Outside his door, she stepped aside, allowing Neville to knock. He cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Mortimer, sir, are you in? There was an uncommon silence. Mrs. Dixon and Neville looked at each other. M maybe we should try again, Mrs. Dixon suggested, anxiety mounting. Of course, Neville lifted his fist and knocked again. Mortimer, are you there? Then they heard the sound from the other side of the door. Shh! Mrs. Dixon leaned forward. What was that? Probably Mortimer rolling around on his bed. Neville was irritated. Mortimer? Then they heard a voice. Eugenie! Mrs. Dixon's jaw dropped. She was stunned. What in heaven's name? Neville flushed beet red and stepped away from the door. I, I think I'll let you handle this. No, you don't. Mrs. Dixon grabbed his arm, preventing his retreat. You stay right here. She opened the door. For the first time in her life, she was at a loss for words. All that came out was a squeak. Neville, overcome with curiosity, peeped in behind her. What is that? The voyage was splendid indeed, came the voice again. They could not see the entire body, but rather just the feet that poked out from beneath the structure. She appeared to be laying on her back in her white dressing gown. Neville pushed past Mrs. Dixon, his mouth gaping open. His eyes simply had to be betraying him. He promised himself to go to the doctor as soon as this horrific moment had passed. He was hallucinating. Perhaps the inevitable had occurred, and he'd gone mad once and for all. Mrs. Dixon finally found her words. They built a, a, a boat, a boat for apples. The feet kicked vigorously. When do we dock, Eugene? Mrs. Dixon heard the bell downstairs, but her mind was buzzing in confusion. Neville pushed her gently. Get her out of there before the structure collapses and kills her. Snapping into action, Mrs. Dixon was by the mistress's side in an instant. Mrs. Oscariot, let me help you. You're in shark-infested waters, the woman shrieked, her feet flailing. One of them planted straight into Mrs. Dixon's right eye. Ow! Neville was by her side to assist. She assaulted you. The sharks, the sharks, Mrs. Iscariot gyrated with more vigor. The boat that was positioned above her started to rock and creak. She assaulted me. The boat is sinking. 
Mrs. Iscariot, I do insist that you stop kicking, Neville called out, as each attempt to grasp a hold of one of her flailing appendages failed. He ducked a particularly vigorous kick. Oh, my God, came Mrs. Peabody's voice from the doorway. Mortimer is the one who destroyed the table. What are you doing up here? Mrs. Dixon's hand was over her right eye. The other eye glared at the household cook. "'What happened to your eye? Oh, oh, dear! Oh, is that Mrs. Iscariot?' Mrs. Peabody put her hands to her cheeks. "'What is going on?' "'Sinking! We've been abducted by pirates from Cuba!' "'Ah!' Neville finally grasped her leg, causing Mrs. Iscariot to shriek even more loudly. "'The pirates have me! Eugene, run for your life!' "'I'm not a pirate!' Neville cried above her protests. He grabbed her other leg. "'Mrs. Peabody, don't just stand there. Help me pull her out of here before it's too late!' "'What happened to Mrs. Dixon?' Mrs. Peabody rushed to his side as the boat started to sway to the left. "'She kicked me in the face!' "'Hurry! Just pull!' Neville commanded. "'One, two, I'll give you the booty! I'll give you the booty!' Three. Neville and Mrs. Peabody pulled just in the nick of time, too, for Mortimer's table-crafted boat finally gave in and crashed to the ground, splinters of wood shooting across the room. Mrs. Iscariot, after recovering from the shock of her fictitious near-death experience, looked at the faces about her, her mouth a wide grin. "'Grand adventure, Gerard!' She patted Neville's face and pushed herself up. Mrs. Peabody could not conceal the reason for her presence any longer, and before anyone else could speak, she grasped her colleague's arms. "'Neville! Mrs. Dixon! Miss Longhorn is here! Mortimer's been arrested!' "'We're fresh out of shit, Jeb!' This is what he'd been afraid of. Jeb Binkley scratched his head and squinted in the sunlight. There was anything else you reckon we could do? Find another source is all I can say, the farmer answered. He spit black tobacco into the dirt. I never knew when I started working with cattle that my top industry would be selling feces. Oh, the world's a funny place. Well, there's a lot of skill that goes into fertilizer. Boosting the man's ego had rendered cheaper prices by the pound in the past. Jeb put on his most charming smile. Takes intelligence and drive. Oh, yeah, the drive to shovel cow shit. The farmer spit again. Whole lot of intelligence there. You sure you're out? My cows can't shit fast enough for the demands of the whole village, came the reply. I sure do like you, Jeb. Hate to disappoint. Oh, that's all right, Fred. I'll find something else. The farmer laughed. Heard me a story once about a farmer. <laughs> he got so desperate he started using his own shit to fertilize his plants. Really? Jeb's motor started turning. Oh, yeah. Disgusting bastard, I'd say. Does it work the same? How am I supposed to know? I ain't no shit expert. I just sell it. Jeb nodded, put his cowboy hat back on his head. Well, I'll see you around, Fred. Say you around, Jeb. The walk back to the house was several miles, and it gave him time to think. The farm had rendered several good seasons, but the last several had been dismal. Tobacco farming hadn't quite turned out exactly like Jeb had imagined twenty years back. Leaving Chicago and heading east to find his fortune, Jeb had rejected the offer to join his father's business in the fur trade.
He figured that if he had fur, it'd be because he shot and killed an animal, ate the meat, stuffed the skin, and displayed it proudly on the wall for all to admire. Not because he got it from a shop or something. Tobacco, on the other hand, that was where the money was. After meeting his lovely bride, Bobby Sue Maynard, on the trolley one fine snowy afternoon, they had eloped and moved east. He inhaled the sweet summer air and looked about him. West Virginia had been kind to him. With a small amount of money in his savings account, he'd been able to buy a pretty sizable plot of land, build a house on it, and even get an old car. That car had been used for more than driving, too. He grinned to himself. After years of difficulty, it was in that car that Bobby Sue had conceived their only child, Percy Alabaster Binkley. The boy had a few screws short of a set, but he had a good heart, took care of his mama, and helped out on the farm. Jeb felt like he'd done pretty well for himself. Despite his father's prediction of his ultimate dive into depravity, he'd made a name for himself, and hundreds of folks were in frequent need of his particular yield of tobacco. He just had to figure out how to fertilize the next batch. Jeb plucked a weed from the grass that ran along the road as he wandered. He chomped on it and turned a corner. In the distance, there were several posts with flags atop them. The fairground was a permanent establishment on the outskirts of town. It was a place that people gathered to look after each other's livestock, and there was a new club for kids to parade around their animals and what not, too. Festivals happened at the fairgrounds, and there was even word that the state would be investing in a system to cool off one of the buildings. Jeb thought that was a ridiculous idea. What were they going to do? Cart in a bunch of snow? He contemplated as he walked, and before he knew it, he saw his farmhouse in the distance. Jeb! Bobby Sue was outside hanging laundry on lines that ran between two maple trees. How was the meeting with Fred? Jeb kissed his wife on the neck. No problems, no problems at all. Oh, good, she visibly relaxed. I heard at church that there was a fertilizer shortage. Ain't ever short in fertilizer, baby. What do you think's gonna happen? The cows won't ever stop a pooping. Jeb smiled at his wife's sweet blush. Well, that's true, I suppose, she agreed. Will he be shipping some fertilizer then? Don't you worry a pretty little head about it. Jeb pulled her close. Now, where's that boy of mine? Why, well, he should be coming back from school any minute. Y'all looking so fine doing laundry. Gets my blood boiling. Oh, Jeb! Bobby Sue giggled. She lifted her mouth to his, but before their lips met, she leaned back. Oh, I forgot to tell you, your mother sent a letter. Jeb felt all the blood returning to his head again. Oh, why are you bringing up my mother at a time like this? Bobby Sue snuggled against him. Oh, come on, baby. You always want to know when you get a letter. That woman would never understand the inner workings of a man, Jeb thought to himself, then leaned down to reorient his thoughts. Before he could kiss her, his wife continued, I read it. I hope you don't mind. She said that her digestion is off, so the doctor got some pills. Great, Jeb replied, images of his mother on the pot flashing before his mind. His mother sitting on the pot. That's it, Jeb cried out. He pressed his lips to his wife's. I'm going to the fairground. Send Percy straight away when he gets back. What's happening at the grounds? 
Bobby Sue called after her husband, who was already several yards away, gallivanting toward the road again. Love your baby, send Percy! Never figured it'd take you this long to land a dame, Frank Smith said over his shoulder as he handed his bills to the man in the booth. Number 42. Here's your ticket. Race starts in 30. Frank stepped away and Herbert slid his bills under the partition. Number 12. Number 12, Mr. Brennard. You're betting against Pumpernickel? Frank clicked his tongue and shook his head. That's a mistake, old man. I'll bet you double or nothing on the winnings. Herbert took his ticket and the two headed toward their box. You're on. They arrived at their box seats, some of the best seats at the races, thanks to Frank's family connection with the gaming community. Frank and his father were in the trading business, which offered Frank access to some of the best clubs on the East Coast. Herbert smiled in satisfaction at the envious glances that came from the people they passed as they went inside. I'm working on it, he referred to Frank's earlier comment. Seems like you're treading water, Frank plopped down into the padded seat, picked up the binoculars and angled them toward the starting gate. Did you see Montague today? Looks like a four-flusher. Word is that his entire fortune came from his wife. Despicable. Herbert accepted a drink from the butler. Amazing that they can get away with serving booze here. The cops haven't busted down yet, Frank agreed, accepting a drink. Won't be long. What's the word on the trip north? Is Lily Lou in? Herbert frowned. She said she hadn't decided yet. Frank laughed. Huh, sounds like her pa vetoed it. Is Cindy going? Yes, yeah, she is. Got a little get-up for it, too. Herbert raised his glass. Best of luck to you, man. That woman's a Shiva. What's this I hear about Mortimer being arrested? Frank was amused. Last time I saw him, he was at the church, causing problems there, too. What's the deal with that guy? Herbert shook his head. Lily Lou insists that he's some sort of genius, and I think he's mad. Mortimer's outfoxed you with a lady? Frank's question got Herbert's dander up. He'd been afraid of the same thing himself, but hearing Frank say it out loud made it all worse. He was used to being top dog when it came to the ladies, and to be outdone by a rich baby slob like Mortimer was a deep cut to his ego. There had to be some sort of a mistake. Noticing Herbert's sullen expression, Frank put a companionable hand on his shoulder. Maybe focus your attention elsewhere for now? Take a spin with another dame? I want Lily Lou. Herbert's voice was petulant. Well, don't be so cross, man. The ladies love you. I don't care about other ladies. I want to marry Lily. He took another drink, felt a jolt of pleasure as the alcohol hit his blood. His declaration got Frank's attention. You're infatuated. It's all about the chase for you. You're going crazy because the first time in your life a dame isn't swooning at your feet. Huh. What about Sandy? Sandy bored me. Oh, that's because she's too easy for you. Fell at your feet, Frank agreed. How about Emma? She kisses like a cocker spaniel. Helen? Frank pointed at his friend. Don't tell me you aren't into Helen. She's a looker. Her father was cleaning a shotgun the last time I took her out. I'm not suicidal. Herbert shot his friend a look and then took another drink. Bet you like her? After a moment, Herbert sighed. Yeah. But you're after Miss Longhorn. At least her father won't kill me. Herbert finished his drink, waved the butler down for another. He's also the richest man east of the Mississippi. No, Mortimer is the richest man east of the Mississippi, Herbert corrected. He downed the next drink in three gulps, felt the amber liquid burning his esophagus. 
You think that's why Lilo's after him? Hell no, that tub of lard. Whiskey's loosening your tongue. I like it. Frank grinned, and to the butler, Get my man another. It's on me. Yes, sir. Whatever happened to Mr. Iscariot, anyway? I tried to ask old Mort at the church, but he wouldn't give me any sort of a direct answer. That's Mortimer for you, Herbert agreed. No one knows exactly what happened to him. But he's dead. Yeah. Blown up with a ship. You a cop? Herbert shot back. I hear there was never a body. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. So, Frank swirled the liquid in his glass and watched it thoughtfully. How do they know he's dead? Frank had a point. Herbert shrugged. Well, that's what the police said. Figured Mr. Iscariot had taken one of his boats out, and that dame had an eye on his neck. A boat? Oh, he had dozens. I don't think he's dead. Ignoring his friend's comment, Herbert stood up and went to the railing. The crowd was thickening as the time for the races to begin approached. In the distance, there was a row comprised of twelve stalls. Horses and jockeys were getting situated in each. He looked down at the ticket in his hand, number twelve. He had placed his bet on Blondie as opposed to the local favourite Pumpernickel. Herbert had always been one to deviate from the conventional. It was more thrilling to win on a chance than by playing it safe. A little voice in his head told him that he was being a hypocrite, though, remembering his earlier comment about Helen. But he preferred Lily Lou anyway, he reminded himself, despite her ridiculous infatuation with the local misanthropic millionaire. I'll win her over, that's right, Herbert was telling his empty whiskey tumbler. And how are you going to do that? Frank came to his side. I'll ask her to marry me. When? Next weekend at the festival, Herbert determined. She had a flyer in her hand today when I saw her. I know she wants to go. You have to make her want you first. Well, how do you suppose I do that? Frank grinned. Give her the cold shoulder. Herbert rolled his eyes and turned back to the fence. You're mad. Why, you said yourself that Sandy was too easy for you. Fell at your feet. Frank had a point. Herbert glanced over at him. Thanks, man. I'll think about it. Frank raised his glass and grinned. On behalf of all single and happily unmarried men of the East Coast, here's to your ball and chain. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.